0: Welcome to this Jersey Heritage podcast where we're going to be exploring some of Jersey's links to the transatlantic slave trade. My name's Lucy Layton and I'm the Exhibitions Curator for Jersey Heritage and today I'm talking to Keith McClelland from the Centre for the Study of the Legacies of British Slavery at University College London. Now welcome Keith, could you tell us a bit about your role within the project and a bit of the background to the centre?
1: Yes, the, the project was originally established in 2009 uh, with the aim of exploring uh, the, uh, those people who received compensation at the point of the abolition of slavery in 1834 uh, and who received compensation for the loss of their so-called property, that is, the loss of enslaved people. Uh, So the purpose of the project was to document who these people were, to show how much money they received, to explore their links to uh, modern British society in various ways, not only economically, uh, but also culturally, politically, socially, in, in the period following abolition.
0: And could you just clarify some of the the dates involved in the abolition process? Because I know sometimes people are confused about 1807,
1: 1833. Yes, yeah. Well, the um, let me go back just a bit before that, which is that the British started to colonise the Caribbean really in the 1620s with Barbados, Jamaica in the 1650s, and it was an expanding empire uh, based upon slavery. Uh, The abolition of the slave trade in 1807 uh, was a result of popular pressure, including from people like Wilberforce um, and Thomas Clarkson and others. Um, And that abolished the trade between Africa and the Americas uh, and forbade uh, Britons from being involved in that. The abolition of slavery came in 1833, enacted in 1834, and that um, uh, abolished slavery in the British Empire, at least in the Caribbean sections. Uh, as it happened, slavery continued elsewhere, for example, in India, but it took a different form. So it's a crucial distinction because between the abolition of the slave trade and of slavery, because what the abolition of the trade does is to uh, attempt, at least, to prevent the reproduction of enslaved labor from Africa. Uh, And the abolition of slavery, which is finally enacted by 1838, seeks to abolish slavery altogether in the Caribbean.
0: So could you explain a bit about the role of the compensation scheme, the sort of economic um, part of abolition?
1: Well, the um, the amount of compensation that was granted by the British government was £20 million. Pounds. And uh, this had come about as a result not only of the shift to abolishing slavery, but to doing a deal, in effect, with the slave owners, plantation owners and the like, um, to compensate them, as I mentioned, for the loss of their property so they would receive money. The enslaved, of course, received nothing. and Indeed, the enslaved... In- had to effectively pay for about 80% of their own liberation. Um, so th- when the deal was done, it was 20 million pounds. Uh, what does 20 million pounds mean? Well, it was the equivalent of about 40% of state expenditure in, in, the, in 1834. 20 million pounds is often reckoned to be about 16 or 17 billion pounds in today's terms. Um, uh, it's always difficult to translate into today's terms. But this was the biggest bailout by the British state in terms of a compensation scheme that, that there had ever been. And it's you can liken it in many ways to, let's say, the bailout of bankers in 2008.
0: Yes, yeah, so that really gives you a sense of the scale of it. Enormous. And could you tell us a bit about the different compensation claims? Um, presumably, some of them are very large. Uh, that, were there yes. some smaller claims as well?
1: Um, the compensation claims range greatly. You get a lot of people who are claiming for one, two, three enslaved people. Often, these are women who are making those claims who are living in the Caribbean or in, in some cases living in Britain. Um, On the other hand, you get people who um, own very large numbers because they own not only a single big plantation, but several big plantations. Um, uh, A famous example um, is uh, John Gladstone, who was the father of W.E. Gladstone, the 19th century liberal prime minister. Um, And uh, Gladstone owned in British Guiana in particular. And in total, the amount of compensation that he received, somewhere around £110,000. Again, if you want it in today's terms, multiply that by roughly 80, 85 times. This is a huge amount of money. But then between these very small claimants and these very big claimants, you get a lot of people who are claiming for 30, 40, 50,000.
0: So you've examined, as part of the project, you've examined these forty six thousand claims, and now they are available online in yes. on this database. So, yep. presumably, this is an amazing resource for researchers.
1: It is an amazing resource, and I, <laughs> I say this as a kind of point of collective vanity. I think we did a very good job, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and um, uh, all of the on the database on the website. Uh, you can get the details of every claim, of every claimant, uh, and then biographical details as much as possible, of at least some. Uh, but the but the uh, the resource has been used by a very large number of people. It's used by academics who are interested in the history of slavery. It's used by a lot of family historians, genealogists, local historians. And um, it's used, for example, by... It has been used by primary school kids doing projects on a house in the area where their school is, and finally it's connected to slavery.
0: Well, I know from a personal point of view, I have used the database to look at uh, Jersey residents who put in claims because that's one of the... Um, one of the search terms is by address, isn't it, by place? Um, And I think there are about 33 claimants by people resident in Jersey. Yeah. Um, So it's been really fascinating to look at some of those stories.
1: You can get people who are benefiting as individuals, but they're also part of families. So that, for example, the Reverend William Garnett... is a beneficiary. He claimed compensation of uh, uh, almost £377 for ownership of 17 enslaved people. But his daughter and her husband, his daughter Elizabeth and her husband Michael Jackson, also make claims, in their case, for 151 enslaved people in St Lucia and Barbados. So... Uh, one of the things about the compensation claims is that you can only claim as an individual. But often, of course, these people are embedded in families. They're connected, in some cases, to institutions. So they're, in effect, not... This should be seen not only as individual transmission of ownership of property, of wealth, but familial transmission of property. Um... So the numbers involved are much bigger than 46,000 claimants because of whole families being. And, of course, you get some, in effect, dynasties of ownership, the Drax family of Barbados. The the family which owned uh, enslaved people, continue to employ people on plantations after slavery, still have major interests in the Caribbean, economic interests. And um, this is carried by the current member of the Drax family who is a conservative MP. So there are continuities in many cases over long periods of ownership of enslaved of connections to plantations and, and so that on.
0: inherited wealth still
1: being, In some cases. Yeah,
0: still being felt. It's being in felt, this yes.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean going back to the Garnet family. I mean they're an interesting case of people who put in claims because they were resident resident in Jersey, but I don't think they had any connection with the island until they came here yes. post abolition. Yeah. Um, presumably part of that wave of people coming to the island in retirement. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we we know where they lived um, and indeed um, Reverend Garnet actually died in the island in 1844 and was mm-hmm. buried in St. Saviour's graveyard. And I think there are a number of graves in that churchyard with connections to the slave trade and abolition and the compensation scheme. I mean, another really fascinating story is that of the Burke family. Yes. Um, who... <laughs> so he came to the island william burke and and his wife, and they William Burke had received compensation for the loss of one thousand two hundred and eighty nine enslaved people and was paid more than four thousand pounds, so yes. a huge sum yeah um but interestingly, we know that he brought a former enslaved woman, Hortense Watson, mm-hmm. to work for the family as a housemaid. She is listed as part of the household in the 1841 census. Uh, So could you perhaps tell us a bit about the slave registers? Um, Because I know she appears in the slave register under William Burke's property. Yes. Um, So, you know, a fascinating story there. Indeed.
1: And um, just before mentioning, talking a little of the slave registers, one of the things this illustrates is, of course, that uh, the bringing to Britain of enslaved people had been going on for a very long time. Uh, you know, the British, as I mentioned, colonising the Caribbean in the 17th century. Um, and in some cases, uh, they're bringing people to Britain. Uh, there's a celebrated case of Mary Prince, who writes a, an autobiography, um, who manages to escape her extremely brutal owner. So there's a long history of black migration into Britain for various reasons. Slave registers um, were uh, initiated at the behest of the abolitionist movement following 1807 because they wanted to keep a check on whether owners were illegally importing uh, enslaved people. And you do this by having a list of who's on the plantation or the estate, who's being held, Um, And then you can check it at the next register against who has died, who has been manumitted or or their freedom has been bought, um, who has been uh, bought in. Um, And um, the registers are kept uh, in most cases every three years until 1832, Um, and they provide in effect a census of the entire enslaved population. Uh, And given that the uh, enslaved population at any one point in the 1820s, the enslaved population of the Caribbean, British Caribbean, is about three-quarters of a million. This is a lot of names over a number of years. Um, And these records are kept in the National Archives at Kew. And as you mentioned, one of the things that they do is to not only give you the name, Uh, And, of course, the name is that which has been given to the enslaved person by the masters.
0: So they would lose their African identity, their African name, they'd be given a...
1: Those have disappeared at the point, in effect, of... uh, disappeared in terms of records at the point of being transported from Africa on the Middle Passage. Um, and, And, of course, typically enslaved people have simply one name, Phyllis or... Bob or whoever. Um, So you get the name, you get the age, you get the so-called color, um, which is, of course, conducted in racialized terms. So you simply get black or Creole. And you get, for example, either African or Creole, meaning that they're born in the Caribbean um, and living in, let's say, Barbados, But one of the important things about the slave registers is precisely as you're saying, that you get a name. And after all, in most documentation about the enslaved, including much of the compensation records, what is being singled out is not a name, but a unit of financial calculation. How much was this person worth? Um, uh, how many of the enslaved are there? Because it reflects not only a barrage of statistical information about all sorts of things, which is growing at this period of the early 19th century, but also the ways in which white plantation society conceives of the enslaved. They are likened Legally speaking, to household goods, they're chattels. At the same time, you have to negotiate the fact that these are also human beings. And uh, plantation owners are never able to reconcile those two things.
0: So hence the importance of the slave registers, because you get a sense of individuals, although they've yes. lost their African identities, they're still individuals who are recorded with as you say gender yeah. age you feel like you're getting a sense you're, of individual people yes you're
1: beginning to glimpse who the the, uh, the lives of these people so
0: for a, a Jersey example like Hortense Watson who we know in the Jersey census of 1841 was working as a housemaid yes. in Windsor Crescent yep. a, a lovely property in town which was inhabited by the Burke family Um we can trace her back to the um, the slave register, you know, a list of the individual and slave people who were owned by yep. William Burke, and she yep. appears on that at the age of one. Mm. Which, again, just seeing, you know, a baby, she is owned, she is the property of William yes. Burke, so it's a, it's a very powerful record seeing...
1: Precisely. ..seeing Precisely. people listed there as individuals. Um, and many people are rightly shocked when they come to realise that at the point at which somebody is born, they are in slavery.
0: I I think people might be surprised at the number of claims that were put in by
1: women. Indeed. I mean, we were surprised. Um, When we built the original database and started developing tools for analysing the material, then it was surprising to find that between 40 and 45% of claimants were women.
0: Mm. So looking at a local example of that, um, we have listed a Rebecca Padmore... Yes. ...who was awarded £135 compensation for the loss of seven enslaved people in yes. Barbados. and uh, She was actually born in Barbados, according to the 1841 census in Jersey, but age 50, she was living at Park Place in St Helia. So... You know, a good example of a woman with a fairly small claim. Yes. But who presumably then is has retired to the island and is enjoying the benefits of that compensation claim. Yes. In her ha- retirement.
1: Indeed. And, of course, we are unlikely to know what happens to the people who she had owned mm. or what she felt about slavery.
0: Yes, presumably because she was born in Barbados, she would have a better idea of the conditions in which enslaved yes. people were living than yeah. a lot of these claimants who, as you say, lived in the UK and had never been to the Caribbean. So yeah. it was all very removed from their,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: their daily existence. Yes, indeed.
1: Yeah. One important dimension of the uh, database and website is that in tracking individuals... Obviously, there's a lot of attention paid to the question of compensation. But what we've also tried to do as much as possible, and in many cases it isn't possible, is to show the links between particular individuals and uh, their insertion into different aspects of 19th century British social, political, cultural life. So, for example, where we know that somebody was a collector of paintings or of books, where we know that somebody had built a country house or modified one or left some other kind of physical legacy, um, or where somebody had written a number of books themselves, where somebody was a politician. So there are various legacies, and you can get at these through the website by clicking on the Legacies tab. Um, to try to show the ways in which these people who were slave owners were not seen as pariahs within the society, as some of them had been seen in the 18th century. These are people who have, as it were, ordinary lives, um, engaged with various different kinds of institutions and cultural practices and so on. Um, And um, we need to see... Slave owners, not as this peculiar distinct group that is very common within British society of the mid nineteenth century
0: so slave ownership was a very ordinary yes. fact of life for yeah. a lot of these
1: for a lot people. of these people, yes indeed,
0: yeah, and the impact of that compensation, that huge amount of money coming into the into, into british society. And, Things like the um, there's a lot of um, investment in the railway yes. network that yeah. kind of impact. Yes,
1: yeah, know. indeed.
0: And it would be really interesting. I think there's much more research to be done on in Jersey about the impact of those compensation claimants coming to settle here, and the influx of money, and you know the impact that had within the island.
1: Indeed, although obviously, as you appreciate, it, it's often very difficult to track. What happens to the money, what happens to individuals? Um, although, one, just to go back to one of the Jersey examples, one of the interesting cases is Joseph Gordon, um, not least because his so called natural son, uh, George Gordon, was by the 1860s a fervent critic of slavery um, as it had existed was a supporter of the Morant Bay Rebellion in Jamaica in 1865 and is executed by the governor, Governor Edward John Eyre, in 1865 for his part in the rebellion or um, uh, however you like to call it. Um, So tracking those kinds of people and connections over generations, extremely interesting Thing to do, but often quite a difficult thing to do.
0: Yes, but it's fascinating that within one generation you can have a slave owner and then a leader of a, you know, slave yes. uprising. or yes,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, very complex stories. Well, thank you so much for giving us an insight into the work of the of the centre, and um, this, you know, future project to digitise the slave registers sounds like it would be another um, incredible resource for. For researchers?
1: Well, I hope so, and thank you very much.
0: Thank you.